Job 28 is a odd one in some ways in that it, it seems to zoom out from what's happening. It seems to leave the, the discourse between Job and his friends and Job and God. And, of course, I don't spend a lot of time, maybe I should, I know some teachers do, giving you all of the textual criticism, the here's why some people don't believe that Job authored this, or here's why some people don't believe that this, and I just, I, I just don't have much patience or tolerance for it. If you ever get really excited about that, I can point you to some great books that can affirm the authenticity of Scripture. Because chapters like this come along, which to a natural, a naturalistic set of eyes, and eyes that are looking at a book without faith, it says, well, this doesn't make any sense. Job was just complaining about his friends and about God and lamenting his circumstances. And then just suddenly we have a chapter that is this hymn of praise for the wisdom of God. Why in the world would that happen? Who would do that? Well, with the eyes of faith, you get it, right? This is the whole point of the book. Chapter 28 is the point of the book. Everything else points inward on this. Chapter 28 asks the question, where is wisdom to be found? And only somebody who doesn't think the book has a divine author and theological purpose would suggest that it doesn't fit. In fact, I would tell you, everything else fits around it. The whole story of Job and everything God does with Job and everything that Job experiences and says and encounters and is changed by is because of what's in this chapter. So we step back from the debates and we ask the question, where is wisdom to be found? Now, that's not the way... Job first phrases the question here, which is really helpful to us because in our pain, the question we ask is not, where is wisdom to be found? In our pain, what is the question that we ask? It's one word. The question we ask is why. And Job's been asking why in one way or another for 26 chapters And the way we enter this chapter is, as readers, as observers, hearing Job ask this question, hearing God's non-answer, God has not spoken in this book since he told Satan he could go mess up Job. And we, the observer, the reader, Ask, why won't God answer why? (laughs) We have a meta question of why won't God answer why? It's not that there haven't been any answers to why in the book. Who who has answered why so far in the book? The friends. They're more than happy to answer the question of why, aren't they? Because you are an impenitent, unworthy sinner. That's why. You're welcome. But 
it's been clear. Job has really dismantled that. Job is confident in his rightness, not in his perfection, in his rightness, the same way that David is confident in his rightness in the Psalms when he says he's blameless, the same way that the Psalms say, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That doesn't mean nobody. It doesn't. It means those who have been cleansed by the redemption of God. And Job is certain that that describes him. And so he's able to dismiss and and dismantle his friend's argument and their worldview. That's not the issue. And then in that context of him being done with them in the previous speeches, and right in the middle of Job addressing God, we've heard a little bit of that in the previous chapter, there'll be a little bit of that in the next chapter, where Job is really making his closing argument. If you think about it as a courtroom, this is where Job is just standing up and giving the closing argument of his defense. But in the middle of it is chapter 28. And it's Ash says it's a unique chapter in the book with no smooth literary connection with the immediate context before or after. Here, and I would add, in the context of a, a tornado god <laughs> is tranquil, contemplative pausing for reflection. In the middle of absolute chaos, asking why about the chaos, getting wrong answers about the why, and getting no answer from God himself. In that sense, it's a very bizarre chapter in its peace with itself, in its tranquility, as Ash says. Derek Thomas calls it intermission. (laughs) This is intermission in the story of Job. Uh, if any of you, uh, is, it will surprise no one, and many of you know, I'm a big musical theater geek because I'm a geek. And uh, in, in musicals, what brings you back from the intermission? It's a, it's a song with no, no words. It's just the orchestra playing that's kind of a, a, a medley of songs from the first act with this tiny, tiny little glimpse of how this is all going to wrap up. The, the feeling of the thing. And that's sort of what this chapter is. It's just this intermission hymn that has the tones, the notes, some of the melodies and themes of the first act, but it's also going to tip us off to the conclusion. It's going to tip us off to the answer of all of this. It's about the wisdom of God. Where is wisdom to be found? And Sinclair Ferguson, some of you know Sinclair. He used to be the pastor at First Pres Columbia, a great theologian. He's retired back in Scotland playing golf now. Uh, But I've had the privilege of knowing uh, Sinclair, not closely, but personally for a long time. He said, unless you can become familiar with the wisdom of God, you cannot make much real progress in the Christian life. Unless you become familiar with the wisdom of God, you will get stuck here. And you will get stuck asking why he doesn't answer why. And I I think we all have that feeling 
Think about the times where you feel stuck in the Christian life. Not moving forward, no light shining over the horizon, no clear path. We're stuck because we cannot make sense of God's reality. And so Job asked the question, in that stuckness, that's one of the options he has here, listening to his friends, getting no answer from God, saying that he needs a, medi- a vindication, he needs a mediator, and, and not getting it, saying he needs a hearing and not getting it. God is not interacting with Job at this point. One option for Job is hopeless despair, give up in his stuckness. This is all it will ever be, an answerless morass. Now, who in my interpretation, not in everybody's. But who did that? Solomon. That's how I read Ecclesiastes, is that he doesn't come around in the end. He gives in to the purposeless stuckness of the morass of life. Job does something different. Job is going to be a contrast to that reading, at least, of Solomon. Derek Thomas says, we all feel the need. Disillusioned students confronted by ideas that question the very foundation of their thinking. They feel the need. Folks who are in pain with life's ambitions and expectations shattered. They feel the need. Young people faced by choices, some of which they know will lead them in the wrong direction. They feel the need. And the need is for wisdom. But where can wisdom be found? That's Job 28. It is stunning in its profundity. (laughs) It, It is Absolutely remarkable. So, Andrew, will you read 1 through 11? Yep. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep, and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye, his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. Thank you. lot going on here. We'll unpack this. But there are two, uh, Ash calls them motifs, two themes at play in what Andrew read. On the one hand, you have an object of great value. You have a treasure, you have a jewel, you you have something of great value. 
And on the other hand, you have a search of great difficulty and cost. It is not easy or cheap to get at the thing of great value. It takes a lot of effort and comes at a high price to pursue the thing of great value. And if you just think about the world, (laughs) the world is filled with complexity, with mysteries to unpack and unfold, with things to learn. That's part of the joy of being alive, is learning new things, is seeing design out of where you thought there was chaos, of seeing purpose where you didn't expect there to be any, of seeing uh, beauty from from an unexpected place, learning how things work, how they're designed is part of the joy of life. Those things are of value and worth searching out. There are, the example that Job uses in this poem, there are literally treasures in the earth. There's gold. There are precious minerals. There are jewels hidden deep within the earth that are of great value. They're worth going to get. And the fact that these valuable things in the earth are in a place that is difficult to get to suggests that someone has deliberately placed them there for the idea that things that are of value are hard to find, yet worth finding out. It's worth the effort to get to them. And he makes comparisons to other animals. He says, um, what did he compare us to? Verse 7, no bird of prey, the falcon's eyes. Verse 8, the proud beast, the lions. This search is uniquely human. This is part of my, you know, what should be all of our challenge with some of the, the really, really intense animal rights people, and I love animals, and we all should love animals, and we all should be uh, kind uh, uh, to, to animals, while also recognizing the distinction that we are not the same as they, and they are not the same as us. And, and it's always funny to me when people say, you know, we're ultimately no different than monkeys. We're ultimately no different than lions. Well, then why didn't the lions build the zoos and sell tickets to come see us? Right? That very exercise, the fact that we're having the conversation about our ontological place in the universe, that's not something the cheetahs are doing. I don't know if you noticed. I've yet to meet the squirrels that started a nonprofit to save the squirrels. There's unique humanness within us. And part of it, Job is saying, is this search, this understanding, this desire, this willingness to search out the things of great value and not just to search from them, but to find them. Look at what he says. Iron is taken out of the earth. We get it. Man puts an end to darkness. We can take lights down into the caves so that we can see what's there. We were, we were uh, uh, clever enough by God's grace to <laughs> capture fire and then do something with it. 
searches out the farthest limit, opens shafts in a valley. Even in Job's day, they figured out how to mine things. It's a uniquely human pursuit, and, and we are uniquely able to accomplish it, to find the thing that is hard to find and worth finding. We outwitted the falcon and the lion. There's no other creature like us. And so this hymn about wisdom begins by praising the wisdom of mankind. There's something special about us. Now we know what that is. We, we know that it's being made in the image of God. We know that it's having God's own life breathed into us, distinct from all other life spoken into creation. Is God's image impressed upon us at creation. And that's why, despite the wisdom of mankind, despite our massive uh, advantages over the rest of creation, apart from God, people still can't figure out the answers to the most important questions. It's always fun to go to these philosophy conferences and hear people, scientists, philosophers, uh, doctors of philosophy, pontificate on all of these declarations about the way things are and to watch some uh, humble soul walk up to a microphone and say, but who am I and what am I here for? And they're just dumbfounded. They've searched the, the depths of the earth, we, we, can, we can split DNA now into the subcomponents that make it up, and we still can't tell you why you're here. And which question's more important? I mean, honestly, if you had to pick the answer to one or the other, which, how cells reproduce, or what is my purpose in existing, which question do you think is more important? They can't answer the more important question. There's the great story. I don't remember if it was in Ash's book or uh, probably Derek Thomas's. The, uh, the German philosopher, uh, Schopenhauer, <laughs> it's probably a made-up story. But the, the story is that he's, he's sitting in the... Oh, fabulous. He's sitting in the park. <laughs> he's sitting in the park. Uh, looking all the way you'd expect a philosopher to. He's very disheveled. He's on a park bench. He looks like a homeless man. And so the caretaker of the park comes up to him, and and he's getting ready to try to run him off because he doesn't want this riffraff in this park. And so the the park caretaker says to the great philosopher, who are you? And do you know what the philosopher says? I wish to God I knew. (laughs) They can't answer the question. Man has all these advantages. Man has all of these accomplishments. We are wired for this purpose of uncovering the riches of the earth and mining them out, finding the things that are hard to find. And we've done it. But do you know what we cannot find on our own? Why am I here? Do you think you can find the answer to why did this happen to me? If you can't even find the answer to why am I here? It's... it's, it's not, it's not mineable. <laughs> you, you, you can't go get it with your technology, with your skill. And so Job moves into a description of what wisdom is. You know, wisdom itself, let's actually, let's pause there for just a minute so we can look at some of these verses more carefully. What is wisdom? 
not a trick question. It's just a very hard question, right? What did you say? I said understanding. Understanding. Yeah, yeah. Wisdom is, I like the analogy Ash uses, uh, that, that when God built the universe, he had a set of plans. He had a blueprint. The blueprint is wisdom. The, the plans by which God built the universe are wisdom. It's the fundamental, this is Ash, not me, the fundamental underlying order according to which the universe is constructed. And that's not just physical reality, though it includes physical reality. How in the world do atoms come together to produce a padded folding chair? Wisdom. God's design of the universe. That's kind of easy for us to see. So now apply that analogy to the moral and the spiritual dimensions. Why is it wrong to kill an unborn child? Wisdom. Why is the wages of sin death? Wisdom. Why is there no name under heaven and earth by which you can be saved? Wisdom. The blueprint of reality. How God made the whole cosmos to be. That's wisdom. It's the architecture. It's the structure of the universe. And Job argues in this poem that if you find that, you answered this. And we think, oh, yeah, but not really the answer I was looking for. I get it. <laughs> but it is the answer. And, and so the poem, I love this, Ash says, invites us as we read this, to not just be philosophers or thinkers or debaters. A lot of people who get excited about the wisdom literature of the Bible, a lot of people who get excited about theology in general, philosophy or theology, they become, they become a kind of, of thinker who doesn't think. <laughs> They, they, they become a, 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 a repository of information that never finds wisdom. You could diagram this poem. You could explain its content and be a fool and know nothing. What Job invites us to be is to be honest seekers of wisdom. And this is going to be a really important distinction because what we're looking for is usually not wisdom. What are we looking for? The answer. Yeah. We want answers. Usually a specific answer. The answer. That's what I need. You'll never find it. By looking for it. You will only find it in the pursuit and the attainment of wisdom. You may not like that. I'm not sure if I like that. <laughs> but that is what God says. That is what Job says. And if you understand what I just said, what wisdom is, God's blueprint, that's the only way it can be. You could not find answers outside of God for things whose purpose was given to them only by God. 
You can't have both a sovereign God and answers that you can figure out by your own strength and wisdom. So it's not how it would work. Paul says to the Ephesians that every event is ordered by God. God is, is pulling all of these things together in the creation and then the redemption and then the glorification of all things. And, and we want to pull on a thread and say, give me this thread. I've got to pursue this one as far as I can and get complete satisfaction in my understanding. And the satisfaction only comes from zooming out, from seeing the whole tapestry, and most importantly, seeing its author, seeing its maker, and the rightness of both his design and the rightness of of him being the one who's in control. Uh, any other world would really be a problem. J.I. Packer had a great phrase for this. It's God's omniscience governing, governing omnipotence. Omniscience governing omnipotence. All wisdom governing all power. We know God has all power. He can do whatever he wants. What governs the all power? All knowledge. All knowing. His omniscience. That's why we're better than the birds and the lions. (laughs) Because when you are made in that image, when that's the mark that you bear from creation, that's no trivial thing. That's no trivial thing. You know, we think about the ways that we, and, and this is right, we should, that we, if we encountered an actual angel, People today trivialize angels. We put little cherubs on our Hallmark cards. What would happen if you actually saw an angel with your own eyes? You'd fall down to worship, fearing that you were going to die. How do I know that? It's what happens in the Bible again and again and again. The most common line of angels in the Bible is basically, don't worship me. Stop this. (laughs) That's what would happen if you saw an angel. Do you know that there are ways, Scripture says, that angels marvel at us? What? What? They're supernatural. We're created in the image of God. They were cast out for their rebellion. We were offered redemption in God's own Son. God loved us, not them. So much that he sent his son to die for us, not them. He created disunity of a kind. Don't uh, burn me at the stake. They created disunity in the Trinity for us, not for them. Mankind is really something to behold. Derek Thomas says, the image of God in man lies in his powers of ingenuity, in his artistic creativity, that man is able to research, investigate, and analyze how things are. He's able to devise means to retrieve and to create. He's able to appreciate what is beautiful. But it is a derived wisdom. 
a reflection of the wisdom of man's creator. And, and that, if you want to see the world white, rightly, if you want to get why in the way that we should and can understand why, pursue wisdom. Try to get your vision as close to the Creator. It's going to be a pale reflection. You can't gaze upon His glory first. It'll kill you. It'll burn you up. But see it reflected in the things that He's made and the things that He's done, and you'll get real, real close. Daphne, will you read 12 through 19? But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The two themes are both there. The value of wisdom and how hard it is to get. The inaccessibility. He starts out by saying, it's something that cannot be found. You can't find it. And yet, he goes into the next part, starting in verse 15, saying what? You've got to find it. It must be found. You can't buy it. You can't, you, it I, I can't get to it. But it is so worthy, so worthwhile. And who... Ash says, who have you ever met who so desperately longs to grasp what this order is as the suffering believer? Nobody ever wants it more. Nobody ever wants to grasp the understanding of why is it as it is more than the suffering believer. The unbeliever, even suffering, doesn't know to look for it. Doesn't know how things ought to be. But the believer, Job, knowing God, the nature of God, knowing his faith in God, knowing God's justice, knowing God's power, knows how things ought to be. And so it's the suffering believer more than anybody else who sees this incredibly valuable thing, who longs to obtain it, and who feels the pain of its inaccessibility. I just can't get to it. There's no possible greater goal in life than to seek wisdom. Scripture says this much over and over again. Seek wisdom. There's no greater goal. But the search for this and for this directly is doomed to failure. You you can't find it. You can't can't get it. The Bible, uh, you know, think about Proverbs, the first nine chapters of Proverbs. What are they about? 
Go get wisdom. <laughs> you and you and you and you. Go get wisdom. Ephesians says wisdom is what we need. Colossians says we've got to have wisdom. James says ask for wisdom. The theme of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. We need wisdom. And in fact, uh, Ecclesiastes, again, in my understanding, is Solomon looking at all of life without God. Looking at all of life apart from God's blueprint, which is wisdom, and concluding, yeah, it's just an aimless cycle of things spinning around and around and around, and it's completely random. Good people die early. Terrible people live a long time. uh, Terrible people get rich. Good people go broke and get sick. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Or maybe, Islam even admits, sometimes good things happen to good people. Sometimes bad things do happen to bad people. Why? Aimless cycle. It just goes round and round and round. The the bird's song, turn, 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 is not a happy song, people. (laughs) There's a season because it all just spins round and round and round. Derek Thomas says, So what's the point? What's the point of working? What's the point of studying and trying to make oneself wise? What's the point of seeking wisdom? And he says, if God is not in our hearts, there's none at all. And that's really the theme of this chapter, is if you do that search, if you go through life without God, you will find meaninglessness. Your answer to why will be the same as Solomon's in Ecclesiastes. Vapor. Just empty breath. That's why. And then it gets worse. (laughs) Uh, Noah, will you read verses 20 through 22? From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and Death say, We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Abaddon, I think somebody asked me this a couple weeks ago, and I was flummoxed. Abaddon is the angel of the bottomless pit. So the idea is all the way down, the bottom bottom of the bottomless. Um, So you go looking for wisdom, and... You can't find it in the land of the living, and you can't find it in the realm of the dead. You're welcome. (laughs) It must be found. It is of eternal value. The search for it is essential, and it can't be found. I mean, really, this is like an absurdist, this is like a Harold Pinter play. This is is waiting for Godot. This This is just, you got nothing. And if, as Ash says, the poem ended here, then the point of the poem would be to breed despair and nurture the living death of nihilism. (laughs) Story checks out. (laughs) It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. But the poem doesn't end there. Before we go where it ends, You've got to ask God to change your want. Because where you want this poem to go next is still here. 
you still want the poem to take you to the answer. For whatever your why question is, you still want the, the answer to be the answer <laughs> to your why. Job knows better. He's experienced too much to think that that's how it works anymore, if he ever did. I don't think he did. He doesn't take us to the location of wisdom. He directs our eyes to the one who knows what it is. The one who made the blueprint. Uh, Renee, will you read 23 to 28? God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So much great stuff here. This, is, this might be the best part of the book for me. Did you hear what I said? Remember what I said about musical theater? And you, you've got themes of Act 1. But you also start to get some themes from Act 2. Did you hear the theme from Act 2 here? He starts to talk about the things that only the Lord could do in creation. We're we're, we're getting there. We're getting that glimpse. Just that little melody of what this is going to come down to. Which is this reverence for what God can do but we cannot. That's coming. 20 chapters away, but it's coming. But critically, he doesn't tell us where to go to get wisdom. What does he say? He says, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. Doesn't direct you, he doesn't give you the map to wisdom. He points you to God, not God so that then you get your why answered, just God, that God himself knows the way to wisdom. You don't need to find wisdom first. You need to find God. You don't need to find why. You need to find wisdom because you found God. That can feel deeply unsatisfying until you've been through what Job's been through. And you realize the hopelessness of the other pursuit. The source of wisdom, Derek Thomas says, lies in the one who is all-knowing, verse 23, all-seeing, verse 24, and all-powerful, verse 25. Bam, bam, bam. Why? Why do I seek God? All-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Do you think that a God like that could know the way to wisdom? And that's why he'll, he'll sort of give us a prelude of what's coming later. He'll direct us to the speeches that God's going to give at the end of the book uh, of us being in this sense of awe and wonder about the created order. And he uses the most uh, random of the most random parts of the created order. What does he use as his example? Verse 25 and 26. 
The weather. Wind and rain. Lightning and thunder. How much technology do we have dedicated to the weather? How much research and thought and understanding and time and energy and human ingenuity have we put into the weather? We have 24-hour weather channels. We have weather on the ones. We love to talk about the weather. And we all are laughing. Why? Because we suck at it. And here's the thing. We are terrible at predicting the weather. We're not talking about controlling the weather. That would be a fun conversation. That would be a display of power. Watch us be able, 40% of the time, to control the weather. I'd be impressed. We're talking about predicting the weather. We can hardly, 40% of the time, predict the weather. So yeah. When we look at the one who's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, I think it's a great example that Job goes straight to the weather (laughs) and says, this is going to tell us something about the magnitude of the types of wisdom that this is about. You want to find wisdom? It's going to sound trivial, but you want to find wisdom? Go to the one who can control the weather. Go to the one whose purposes dictate the seeming purposelessness of weather. We think of weather as totally random and arbitrary and fleeting and meaningless, and God has a purpose for every raindrop. Remember, not one maverick molecule. He controls all of it. He has a purpose for all of it. You can't even understand with certainty whether it's going to rain tomorrow. And he has a purpose for making it rain. That's why you seek him. That's why once you give up on the pursuit of having your whys answered, once you give up on the pursuit of finding the answer to whatever ails you, once that has driven you to utter despair, which is where it will take you, Job says, How about looking for wisdom instead? Let me point you to God. Let me point you to the one who gives purpose even to the weather and in his power makes it to be. But we'll get there in a few chapters. Um, He says in verse 14, we've listened to the voices of the deep. We've listened to the voices of the sea. He says in verse 22, we've listened to the voice of Abaddon. We've listened to the voice of death. We've gone everywhere to get an answer to the question of why. So what voice should we listen to since none of those have answers? And what happens? What happens in verse 28? God speaks to them. God speaks. He finally, finally, God has something to say. Job has cried out in his pain. He's cried out in his bigger agony. He's cried out in his frustration. He's cried out in his disappointment and his sense of betrayal and his hopelessness. Job has cried out and cried out and cried out, and God has said nothing. 
And when does God finally speak? Job just looks for this. He just praises in humble awe that God is God. And what does God say? You got it. That's behold. Behold. You got it. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The quality that makes us wise is reverence toward God. Wisdom, Derek Thomas says, comes from knowing God and begins in a right relationship with him. It's not until we've become humble and teachable. What does that mean? What do those words really mean? It means standing in awe of God's essential majesty, the godness of God. Until that blows your mind in such a way that you fall down in reverence. Willing to have, he says, your own ways turned upside down. The godness of God making us lay down what we think is right. That's when you become wise. That's wisdom. He's the one with the blueprint, and he's the one who should have the blueprint. That doesn't mean we're suddenly not hurt by the plans on his blueprint. (laughs) But there is wisdom in falling down in awe and reverence at the author of that blueprint simply because he has the right to draw those plans up. Derek Thomas says, God has a purpose in all of this that Job does not comprehend, but he casts himself on God alone to give meaning to his life. So practically, what do you do in that depth of despair? You're not getting your why answered. You know that, you're, you're, you know that this is not a successful pursuit to keep asking why. What do you do? You say, God, you're the only one who can give meaning to life. Where else do we go? You have the words of life. This is going to be a great tie into the sermon today. We, we imagine that what faith looks like is so winning, so, so strong, so admirable. You'd know it if you see it. That is, oh, yeah. Sometimes. And every time at the beginning, faith looks like a person sitting in the ash heap of their own life, barely looking up and saying, well, nothing else worked. What have you got for me, God? That's it. That is a a mustard seed of faith. (laughs) It's, 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 not a, it's not a theology degree. It's not a Martin Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. A mustard seed of faith is turning to God because you have profoundly realized there's nowhere else to turn, probably because you actually tried everywhere else. It's probably a very experiential knowledge. And that's okay. We think God will act like a human. Oh, you come crawling to me now. Ah. 
That's not God. That's me. That's not God. How do we have awe for God? Every author I read says the same thing. You've got to look to the cross. You've got to look to the cross. Why? Well, it, 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 it's the biggest version of a lot of things we need to understand. And one of them is how God can possibly bring about good things from horrible things. Just on that simple level. The cross is horrible. The innocent one, crucified. Not for his sins, but for sins of people who did not want him to bear their sins. <clears throat> not everybody in the, cross, in the crowd screaming crucify him was unregenerate. Do you know you'll see some of those people in heaven? Somebody whose testimony is that they cried out with their own voice, give us Barabbas. What a testimony that will be. If we could see, this is Derek Thomas, God at work in salvation through Jesus Christ, if you can see that. Why do I look to God? What do you mean when you say just look to God? I mean, really, look. Get it. Get it in your head what happened on the cross. And then try to explain to yourself how it could possibly be the case that if God was at work for your salvation through Jesus Christ's death on Calvary, how could he not also be at work for your good and your through salvation through something that, yes, it is terrible. The thing you experienced is terrible. It ain't the innocent one dying for sins that aren't his. It's just not. He shows us one so that we have categories to understand and believe and trust the other. But he explains the one to us, the cross. He answers the why very clearly in Scripture. He doesn't answer the why very clearly on your suffering. He points you back to the other one. He says, you got to look to me because the one who did this, you have to believe is doing the same thing with your suffering, with your trial with your difficulty. And that leads us to all. Christopher Ash says in the book, he does not take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. He beckons us to bow before the Lord himself who knows the answers, but chooses not to tell us. Listen to this sentence. Our eyes are directed away from the search for the architecture and toward the person of the architect. You're trying to look at the building, the finished thing he's made, the world as it is, and understand all the intricacies of the architecture. And the whole cry of Scripture is that that is the way to madness and despair. Look to the architect. And that's why he lays out these themes for what's coming at the end. It's why he anticipates the speeches of God that are going to come later. This is... uh, I forget where I mentioned this. I was reading a Samuel Rutherford sermon. And I got to try to translate this from 19th century. I don't know how people talk this way. Here's what he said. I'm closing with this. We must set our face 
against what may befall us. So, so we have to look forward to whatever adversity is going to come. Till he, God, and we be through the briars and the bushes on the dry ground. We have to look to the conclusion of our race, that we with God together will be on the other side. And then Rutherford said, our soft nature, so we're wimps, would be born through those troubles, this miserable life. Our desire would be that Jesus simply picks us up and drops us on the other side, safe and dry and warm. And he says, but in God's wisdom, because God knows our frame, he knows the way we're made, he knows exactly what we need to be on the other side. Through his wisdom, his children arrive wet, shod, and cold-footed to heaven. You don't get to heaven in personal triumph. You get to heaven ragged and worn with cold, wet feet. Time will eat away and root out our woes and sorrows. They'll all be done with eventually. But our heaven is now in the bud and must grow up to a harvest. The the pain of growth, that journey of getting us from there to here, God, the architect's design of what it would take is so hard. But it gets us there, and nothing else would. The, The lives of ease we imagine would never get us to glory. I'm not looking for a life of ease. I'm just looking for a life easier than this. I get it. I am too. It'll never get us there. 